Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Maria Stolger, and this is episode 38 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. Welcome back to the podcast for 2018 to those of you who have joined me before. And if this is the first episode you're tuning into, welcome. It's great to have you on board. However, you might be listening, driving the car, walking the dog or you might be in your studio. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I've taken a few weeks off and am so excited to start off another year of talking with some of Australia's most interesting painters. And we're starting off with a brilliant artist, William McKinnon. He's originally from Victoria, but he's living in Spain at the moment. You might have seen his works hanging in Sydney Contemporary last year with Hugo Michel Gallery or amongst the Win Prize finalists in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. His works are landscapes, many in a large format, an illuminated road at night, a coastal landscape, a suburban scene. They have an element of realism until you move closer and see that there's something not quite real about it. A colour, a shape, some incongruity, and that's what I love about them. He calls them psychological landscapes, and in this episode you'll hear just what he means by that. He's had over 13 solo shows and been in many more group shows. His work is held in various public and private collections. He's won the Martin Bequest Scholarship and he's been a finalist in many art prizes. His working life has taken him from London to Fitzroy Crossing in Australia's Outback and you're going to love hearing about how he starts his day's work. He has a show coming up at Jan Murphy Gallery in February this year. We recorded this interview in December, so when we say next year, we mean 2018. And all the paintings we talk about are on the website, talkingwithpainters.com. I started by asking William where he grew up. So I was born in Melbourne in 1978 and grew up mainly in Victoria but we moved around a lot. Um, My father was on a farm in Western Victoria and my mother and stepfather and my brother and I, we we moved around a lot. So did you live on a a property sort of a thing? Well, on my my dad's side are farmers and have been for five generations. Mm. And between school and university, I I spent a year jackarooing. Okay. And that was enough to put me off farming, <laughs> to take the romance out of the bush. Why? For, what was it? What was it like? It was incredibly hard work. It's like 70 hour weeks. But I still kept a studio and I painted on the weekends and I was told that it got quiet in the winter, um, but then oh, the yeah. winter passed. <laughs> well, in a way, it's a bit like being a painter. It's a 24 hour, seven day a week um, preoccupation. Right. And what did you do? Like, you, like herd cattle and stuff you, like that? Uh, yeah, some mustering. I really enjoyed the mustering. Mm. Um, sheep? You, yeah, sheep? sheep and cattle. But you're the, the lowest of the low, kind of the shit kicker, really. Right. Yeah, doing lots of feral, feral jobs. <laughs> so that's when you decided you definitely want to be a painter. Yeah, I, I painted seriously there and um, I got together my first show. I put together a body of work during that time, during that year. 
Oh, okay. Well, can we go back first? Yeah. We're going to go start from the beginning. What are your memories of art as a kid? Because, um, you know, my second guest of this podcast is your mother, Catherine Haddam. And um, so I'm assuming that you had art around you a lot as a child. Yeah. And I remember as a child always having to have a sketchbook with me if we got in the car or we went away on holiday, I'd always be drawing. And I remember mum in various studios and I guess that's been important, that art has always been there and it's been a, a, a possibility and a way of seeing the world. What about art at high school? I mean, did you, did you do art at high school? I'm presuming you did. I went to Melbourne Grammar and there was a most excellent um, sort of art centre called the Motorworks, which was separate to the main school. And it had young, practising, terrific teachers, Paul Baxter and Sybil Laris and Greg Sucro. And that was incredibly important. Did you identify as like the art, an artistic person, a creative person at that age? Certainly I was very serious about it and they all assumed I'd go to art school and they were pretty shocked when I chose to go to university. So what, so what did you do at university? Uh, I studied a Bachelor of Arts and focused on philosophy and I kind of just changed around. Oh, why did you, why did you do that? So, you weren't, so when you left school you didn't think, oh, I want to be a practising artist? I did, but both my parents dissuaded me and very sensibly so. And I saw the reality of how tough, tough it was and they encouraged me to get another sort of degree that might be more useful. So what was, what was it like? What was that degree like? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was, it was fascinating. I studied philosophy, cinema studies, uh, languages. Oh, and right. So were you painting during that period? I was painting and exhibiting yeah, throughout Jackarooing and throughout university. I had my first show at the George Payton Gallery uh, during my first year. First year of uni? Yeah. How did you manage that? So it's quite, quite a funny story. I was incredibly naive and I walked into the George Payton Gallery with a roll of probably about 50 square metres of paintings that I'd done throughout the year of Jack Rewing. And I was told very politely by Susan Hewitt, all dressed in black and looking very austere, that we have a process here and you need to send slides. And completely naive and despondent and she said oh go on show us what you've got and I unrolled like a year's work and she gave me a show oh my god so what did you what were the paintings of they were sort of dreamy surreal expressionist paintings with a lot of drawing into wet paint Okay, and how did it, how did it go? Were you nervous? It was fan, it was the most fantastic feeling. It had a terrific response. So quite not naive, but very um, intuitive paintings, and it sold out in the first kind of two days or something. And oh my god! I was probably hooked after that. Oh yeah. Well, that must have been a high. That Amazing. must have been such a high. Amazing. Well, you sort of, you know, those early days, you really don't know whether this passion is actually going to connect with, some, with anyone mm. else. And to have that vindicated was, 
It was a tremendous feeling. Oh, yeah. I, couldn't I remember imagine. going to the closet and kind of screaming. I couldn't believe that this was actually <laughs> possible. <laughs> so uh, after that, I created a self-styled sort of apprenticeship through part-time work. Oh, yeah. Where I worked for at Colour Square, the framers, one day a week. And that led to me working as Kim Westcott's printmaking assistant. And I also worked for Michelle Kemp, cataloguing her father, Roger Kemp's estate, over two years. And that was kind of like one day a fortnight. I was working at Christie's as a storeman um, during the auctions, during oh, okay. university holidays. and and all. But they were all jobs that allowed access to fantastic work and to kind of learn technical skills and to look at um, first-rate paintings. And also talking about it all the right. time. And yeah. I think that it was a little more complicated that at the time video was massive in art schools and I, could, I was always wanting to paint and I didn't want to bang my head up against an institution. So this seemed like an alternative path. And the irony is I, I decided to go to art school uh, later on when I was 28 in London and I was accepted to Chelsea School of Art and Design. And what, were you living in London? Right, I was in, I was in London working as Tim Maguire's studio assistant, which, and that's a job I kept. Who's an Australian artist. Right. Yeah, just, yeah. Um, Tim was incredibly generous and when he would finish a show and, and go off for a show and take a break, he would allow me to use his studio. So I'd work, um, it was incredibly formative time. He was a very generous and uh, terrific model really of mm. work ethic, um, how he embraced technology and uh, painting and printmaking mm. as a technology. And his just general approach to life was a, has been mm. a really significant um, model. So when you say work ethic, what do you, what what sort of things do you think is important in that with for an artist? Well, it's just time and energy and generating your own momentum and keeping that going. A friend talked about a battle of inches and I guess that married with the kind of 10,000 hours thing. It's not oh, yeah. about inspiration. It's kind of putting the time in. And um, yeah. I think you look at artists who are successful and they all have major work ethics. Yeah, so it, like turning up to the studio when you might not feel like it sort of a thing? Well, it's just an improbable battle and um, you really have to push, and there's lots of stages, but I think that first stage post-art school, or it's all difficult really. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I think to kind of find your own voice and to not be crushed by the weight of art history and... Yeah, sort of mm. to get to get through and to keep going. I was awarded the Martin Bequest Travelling Scholarship actually to go back to Chelsea School of Art and Design and complete my Masters, that it was for 18,000 over two years and I knew that just wasn't enough to um, actually just live in London. So what I did is I, I fashioned a, a kind of another I hatched a plan really. I'd always wanted to spend time with senior Indigenous painters, so I 
I changed direction and I created a, um, I don't know what you say, but um, a two-year two plan where I was going to um, spend time in the Kimberley and I was artist in residence at Munkaja Arts at Fitzroy Crossing. And then I worked for a year full-time as a field officer at Papunya Tula. Oh, what is it? What's a field officer? So a field officer is an employee of the Indigenous-owned arts centre and you have many roles. One of them is to get the stories from the artists as well as handing out canvas to authenticate the work, um, to stretch and prime and so you must have make met. lots of cups of tea and... <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that wasn't in the brochure. <laughs> Let's just put it been, that way. That would have been amazing. Absolutely extraordinary. Oh. And the access and, um, and contact of sitting there with Nada Nungarai, you know, these really some of the great artists that have ever been who were born in the desert and who didn't speak any English, you know, and we don't know when they were born. And... Brought up with all the jukupa, all the language, and to sit beside them mixing paint while they were painting was an extraordinary privilege. So did you learn from them? Um... Well, it wasn't really about learning. It was more facilitating their work and helping on back-to-country trips, which was also an extraordinary privilege. And What's a back-to-country trip? Where, where you would take uh, elders and people from the community back to sites of, or, um, of significance. Um, but you were basically trying to facilitate this continual culture and oh. its transference and its, its legacy. So that's what that, that, so that's what you did for a period of what? Two, for, for a year. For a year, And right? then I had a year in Fitzroy Crossing. Oh, okay. How was that? I think the time in Fitzroy Crossing is actually when I really found my voice as a painter. I spent several years in Europe working for Tim Maguire, going to art school and then coming back to Australia doing a master's. And this was a time when I was away from major art centres and institutions and kind of just the art world in a way, even though I was surrounded by this extraordinary painting, but in a way... the the Aboriginal artists were the, the rock stars and no one cared about me, which was fantastic because you had this incredible freedom. And I think for the first time, it was difficult as well because of their special secret, sacred spiritual connection to the country and this magnificent visual language, which is difficult to compete with. So I had to kind mm. of negotiate myself, you know, what, what can I say about this? And how can I make interesting paintings amongst this, you know, extraordinary history and um, amazing, amazingly powerful works? Mm. And and I came to the conclusion to say, well, I'd been making these sort of collages and using other people's work and the way I kind of got around it was just to kind of look immediately around me and to look inside and to say, well, that's enough. This is my take and this is what I feel about it. And that kind of opened the door, I think, which and I've never looked back from. So you found 
your subject matter in a way. Was, is... uh, absolutely. Um, and it was the world that was immediately around me and mm. how I felt about it. You know, the thing I love about painting is it's, it's an open, experiential, like iterative, you know, it's, it's the doing, there's no shortcuts. Mm. And a novelist talked about writing as driving through a foggy night and you know the next turn to take, but you can't see the end of the journey and painting is like that. Mm. And that's also the, the magic of it, or not the magic, but the kind of, that's the, the beguiling thing is, it is something you have, actually have to do and yeah. um, participate in. And then you, you sort of, I feel like I'm following these clues and on the way home from the studio, I'll see a solution to a barrier I've got in a work that might be a shadow on the road or a, a sign. And in a way that hands the baton of what, how to proceed. Right, and so, so each morning when you return to the studio, you, you're not thinking, uh, now I'm going to just follow in with my plan of that section. You, you're actually responding to what you did the day before. Is that how it works? Is there a reaction? Well, often it's on the way to the studio, um, I'll, I'll see things or, I'll, you know, I'll be listening to a podcast or, or, or I'll have an idea. But I have, a, I have a strict routine where at the end of the day, I clean up the studio and make it really inviting. And then in the morning, um, I wake up and I write my morning pages and then I meditate and then I drive into the studio and I work for four hours. So that's, that's your routine. It's right. quite important to you to have that routine. Yep, absolutely. Structure. Yep. And I do that five days a week and I make myself take the weekend off, uh, even if I want to keep painting. Oh, that's interesting. And with the, with the morning pages, because I, I was, you know, I'm very interested in that, uh, on how writing and expressing yourself through writing can help your visual art. What sort of things will you be dealing with? Well, mainly it's... I call it landing planes. I, I kind of wake up a little bit anxious with lots of thoughts in my head and then I just write. And it's not a diary and it's not for anyone else to read. But as I write, things start to kind of find their place. And, and that combined with meditation, sort of ideas come to the fore. At least how to start. And then once I'm yeah. started, then away you go. And... How long would you meditate for? 20 minutes. Right. And is it self-guided or do you have a guided meditation? I, I listen to um, a guided meditation. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really, really valuable sort of thing to do. I and call it my medication. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And in fact, it's better than <laughs> medication right. yeah. because, uh, you know, you don't have side effects. Yeah. But it is really interesting, and I think uh, I didn't quite express it very well before, but it, I guess a d painting with a different part of your mind, that it's not this analytical, verbal, cerebral, but it, it's not a dumb, romantic notion of, it's not unknowing, but it's a, it's a deep intelligence that draws on everything you've seen before. 
and I, you know, I like to try and tap into that in, in various ways mm. and let it come through in the work. So and, and you don't necessarily have to understand what you're doing or what's significant. One of the paintings that I really liked, which is now um, in the... State Library, Victoria. Yeah, the State Library of Victoria. It's called Exit from 2013. It's a really large work. It's like 200 by 360 centimetres. But there's a lot of... Well, you know, at first glance you say black, but obviously it's not, it's not black. Um, there's all different sort of colours in that darkness. Is that... I mean, I think that's a really big challenge for an artist is trying to get these big patches of dark colour without losing the life of the painting. Mm. How do you achieve that? Lots and lots of glazes. You can kind of see a bit that there's um, brown and blue and mauve and then there's subsequent layers of colour over the top. So you're getting this very complex... Um, interrelation of colours. Oh, I see. So and there's it... very little black, actually. Yeah, I was thinking that. I'll just Actually, I'll just explain what this is. It's sort of a landscape. It's, it's like a view of a, a town at night with all the lights. This is quite an interesting one to look at because it's, it's seemingly a coherent, um, real in inverted commas, but I think this shows how constructed these landscapes are and why I call them psychological landscapes that this is actually um, Red Hill and then this is the view view down, sorry, Arthur's seat and this is the view down. So this is Melbourne? Yeah, it's We're down the Mornington Melbourne, right? Peninsula. But okay. I've inserted a bridge and an exit sign and these kind of ambiguous signs and none of that exists actually when you drive down. Ah, oh, so, okay, so the left-hand side of the um, uh, canvas is uh, a road um, which is illuminated from point to point from from car by cars and then um, you've got yeah you've got a sign an exit sign and you know other street signs on the left hand side um, you must have really enjoyed doing those night ones well that's actually a bit of a breakup painting that's kind of <laughs> me wanting to get out of a relationship that's the uh, exit sign so really? you know it makes good content for songs and also for paintings so you were thinking about that when you were... Well, I think at a deep level, I wanted to get out of the relationship. <gasps> oh, right. I shouldn't laugh, but, you know, that shows the psychological component that it's kind of using everyday imagery to explain human experience... Not to explain, but to evoke human experiences. Oh. So, that, so when you started that painting, is that what you were hoping to...? No, no, not at all. Um, I was doing a painting for a show down at the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery, mm. and I think that's what I was saying before, that it's kind of life and your time sort of just push through the work. So you don't know what's going to bob up from day to day in a way. That's right. I think you've also said that you like to let new thoughts um, creep into the work. So that's sort of related to that. Yeah, and I think also one of the um, most important thing for me is these large format oversized paintings. And they're the, often the most complex, but 
they're often points of discovery where things emerge, almost like characters or motifs that then reoccur in the work. Oh, okay. So do you, do you deal with each part of that large format separately? Right. Yeah, so when I'm in the studio, I'll just be focused on a square foot of a painting and then I'll go and work on another painting just focused in like that. So in a way, there's like patchwork quilt of these encounters. And every time I'm coming to this, you know, it might be two weeks until I get back to that painting and then a huge amounts happen. And I like to be open to bringing that into the, into the painting. So there's this kind of compression of all this time and feeling and experience and kind of multiple um, yeah, feelings and perspectives, which I think is, you know, true of the human experience, that we're kind of in these different modes, future, past, present, um, WhatsApp calls, you know, novels, DVD series, and I want the painting to kind of absorb this complexity. Oh, and so when you've uh, dealt with those different parts of the painting, will you step back and try and unify that or would that would you just allow that to sit the way the way well that's a really interesting question in the past I've kind of um yeah tried to assimilate and create a coherent uh, space and I think that's where the dark glazing is kind of unified all these elements mm. and more recently I want to let these kind of these disparate these moments, these patches break apart. And I think that's where the last body of work that I'm sending to Jan Murphy next year really shows, reveals that process. I've really been examining Philip Guston and early Hockney and I've been trying to, to leave works at a more sort of fragile um, revealing state because the, the work I admire it's a kind of it's the wobble it's the left-handedness it's the kind of this sort of undercooked raw quality that I love this vitality and yeah I'm, I'm that's in my work but then mm. I sort of sublimate it with facility and some sort of you you know need to or feeling of a need to unify Mm. or to well, make it more kind of um, integrated or something. But mm. I think it's actually the, yeah, the disintegration, yeah, which is yeah. something I love and admire and I'm trying to let come through in the new work. Yeah, right. Um, how do you think that comes through? Do you think, because I notice it's sort of like patches of different brush strokes and yeah, colour. Yeah, well, I think there's one painting is a good example of... Um, it's called the dance between making it happen and letting it happen. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's an area of raw linen and then there's this sort of patchwork of bricks which are painted with kind of like solid oil paint. But you can really see the dr- charcoal drawing. And then I've developed this technique of cutting a roller and loading it with paint. You know, if you think of like Richard Larder or something, but that really floats over the top like a pop-up book. So the raw linen... The, the, the sort of poppy bricks and then this smeared roller kind of do this very satisfying, clunky um, juggle. 
you mentioned uh, Spain. So right. you've, how long have you been living there for? Since March, full time. And then last year, I was going back and forth. Okay. So what, what's that experience been like? Fantastic. Well, I'm there because of my fiance and um, it's similar to, to living in the Kimberley actually, uh, sort of surrounded by amazing art, but then being unknown again is, is quite liberating. All oh, right. So have, how do you think it's changed the way you paint? Has it changed the way you paint at all? Well, I guess that's for others to say. Yeah. But don't you think living in a totally different environment must have some effect on your work? Well, mum has a good thing. Catherine Haddam is also an artist and she said life has to permit you to make the work and um, yeah, my life's in a really good place and I think um, good work comes out of routine and stable circumstances. So I think in that way it's probably being able to be productive and have time and energy and routine that I think produces good work. Yeah. So, so your fiance, uh, Sunshine Bertrand, she's she's an eyewear um, designer. designer, and right. so she's a very creative person as well. Obviously, do you do do you share ideas for your work, on your work and that sort of thing, or how does? How... Not so much. I think um, we're quite mindful to to make sure we have a life outside of our our, our, our careers. Mm because it, they're so all-consuming. Mm. And then we really help each other with more kind of strategic, tactical, like, conundrums. <laughs> 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 Drafting emails and, oh, uh, yeah, right. you know, kind of support role, I think. Yeah. And, yeah, it's probably extremes of the thing when things are going really great or are really challenging. Mm. And then to make sure we have a really full life um, outside of that. Because I guess that's the thing of being an artist or a designer for probably the first 15 years. It has a disproportionate, um, takes a disproportionate amount of time in a way because you're doing other jobs and then you're trying to do, make your work. Mm. And so your personal life often takes, it takes a toll on that. So for once there's sort of the time and yeah, we're very conscious to kind of um, live a balanced life. Yeah, that's that's interesting because especially now with social media and that sort of thing, and the requirement for artists to be a lot more sort of present out yeah, there. Yeah, that's right. It, you do have to make sure that it doesn't cut into your, your your private life too much. Yeah, and art is endless. It's just like walking towards the horizon and. Yeah, that's also part of my routine is I make sure I keep the whole weekend free. Oh, yeah, you were saying that, yeah. Yeah. And is that, did you find that at first that was difficult, not to be tempted to go back in the studio? Well, I think it's being a full-time artist that you have to work out how physically and mentally you can, um, you know, work year in, year out. And I say it's like soil that... And, and that's why I do the four to five hours a day. And often it turns into six, but even if I want to keep going, it's about cleaning up, inviting yourself back into the the studio the next day and also participating in, you know, with your partner, with friends and 
mm. exercise like so you you know you keep the soil healthy and that's yeah. how you can do it year in year out yeah. i think um and it's Have resting and yeah absolutely and yeah. that's a big part of it so when you say you tidy up your studio that's a great idea by the way it's a good trick <laughs> you need tricks because you must get you started quicker in the morning right well that's it it's like to invite yourself in and so um I mean, it's like walking to an art shop. So you've got these canvas started and then all the brushes are lined up, paints are there. So yeah. because, yeah, I think that's the hardest thing is the, the starting. And then once you start, then the, literally the four hours are over kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, because it's so easy to procrastinate with that right. sort of thing. Right, right. And keep sort of, you know, finding excuses for doing other things. And that's, that's, that's why I have the routine. So I wake up and... You know, it just happens, boom, boom, boom. Mm. And it's that first four hours of the day. And I'm sure I do like an eight-hour day in that because it's the best energy, the clarity. Definitely. Um, mm. Oh, everyone has their own things. But I remember Obama saying he's only got two types of suits and he has the same thing for breakfast. And I'm not putting myself in the same <laughs> class, but the less decisions you have to make. And I'll, even down to I would play the same Nick Cave album every <laughs> every morning push the sky away and then the album would be over but I'd done an hour's work and then you know and I think that's the thing like I remember someone describing the studio as being like a stage and you know and you put on your uniform and you walk in uh, and then it just kind of it, there's, it takes over in a way yeah. and then also you can close the door and, and leave it behind Well, William, thank you so much for this interview. I am now very inspired to get to Jan Murphy in February uh, to see your show, and good luck with it. Uh, my pleasure, Maria. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode with William McKinnon. What an interesting artist. It'd be worthwhile to see his show in Brisbane if you can. Details of that are on the website. He also has work currently in the National Gallery of Victoria's Triennial Exhibition. And I'm also going to get some video up on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel soon uh, of um, William talking about his work, so watch out for that. There are now over 50 short videos I've taken of the artists on the show that are posted there, so just Google Talking With Painters playlist and it should come up. Thanks also for your comments and messages on social media. I really love hearing from you. Also, the ratings and reviews on iTunes are incredibly helpful in getting the show out to more people, so thanks for taking the time to do that. Hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters. Well, I think all paintings are self-portraits in a way. They're like this distillation of everything you've seen and felt and you know especially what's going on at the moment in your mind and I guess that's what I'm aiming to do is is to create something that is is true to to my experience of the world at the moment.